Good morning. Uh, this is not how I hope to begin our series through the book of Haggai, but uh, we are where we are. Please pray for our church. Pray that those who are infected would recover quickly and that no one else would get sick. And Lord willing, we'll be back together next week. But for this week, uh, we're going to um, have our sermon in this format over video. And so I hope that it is a blessing to you. Um, if you would grab your Bible and turn to the book of Haggai. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Haggai this morning, starting our brand new series. And uh, our title for our series is The Presence of the Lord. And the title for today's message is Consider Your Ways. Um, so as you're looking for the book of Haggai, you'll find it sandwiched between the two Z prophets, almost to the New Testament. Um, this book takes place chronologically during the timeline of the book of Ezra. Persia has taken the place of Babylon as the dominant empire in the world. And uh, Persia has a different position on religious freedom than the Babylonians, a different way of ruling altogether. Um, whereas Babylon would take all the best and bring them off to, uh, to their capital, uh, the Persians would allow those people to go home. And they allowed them to freely worship their own gods provided that they still had an allegiance to the king of Persia and uh, the first king of Persia whose name was Cyrus actually goes so far as to issue a decree that allows Israel to rebuild the temple and so the exiles are sent back to their land and they're given the opportunity to rebuild the temple um, some opposition arises uh, from among the enemies of Israel and a different king after the death of Cyrus orders their work to cease. And so that brings us time-wise to the book of Haggai. The exiles are back in their land and they are not working on the temple. And what I want us to see today is that the presence of God is what stirs our spirits to serve him. Let's look together at the first eight verses. Uh, we're going to see... In the first eight verses of Haggai chapter 1, we're going to see neglected worship. This is what it says in Haggai 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. When we reach the second year of Darius here in our passage, it has been several years since work on the temple has been stopped. Uh, and so they stopped that work, but life continued on for the Jews. They went about their lives as normal. They had jobs, they planted crops, they had livestock, they raised families, 
and they didn't really seem to care all that much about their inability to worship God as he commanded in the law. Um, which gives us kind of some insight to the exiles that they were brought back, but it wasn't necessarily that they were brought back because of their, um, their piousness or their religious desire, but God is going to work that in them at a later time. Um, and so, so life is going on and they're not working on the temple and they're not really worried about it. And so Haggai, the prophet, sends a letter to the governor of Judah and the high priest. And the Bible tells us that it is the word of the Lord and it is intended for all the people. It's addressed specifically to these two men. Uh, but, but this is the, a picture of God's word being funneled to his people through their political and their spiritual leaders. Um, and, and there's two parts here of the same message, right? So the first thing we see um, in verse 2, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So you have people who are saying that the, the rebuilding of the temple is not something that is supposed to be happening right now. We're not, we don't need to prioritize that. We don't need to say this is the thing that we should be doing. Um, and at the same time, these people are, are focused on their own wealth and pleasure in verse four. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruined in ruins? The idea of paneled houses is trying to convey a picture of wealth and opulence, right? So God is saying, hey, you guys have nice houses, but my house has been lying in ruins. Now, we understand, or we should understand, that God, his presence is not bound to a physical location. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And so God does not need a house. But the idea of a house of God, the idea of a temple, is something that is supposed to, for God's people, trigger a sense of worship in their own lives. And so Israel has neglected that in favor of pursuing their own gain. They, they made the decision to bow to the pressures of the world, and it has left them morally compromised. And rather than mourn over the reality that they are not able to worship God as God has commanded, um, they instead, they just decide, well, I'm just going to focus on me. I'm going to focus on myself. I'm going to focus on my own gain. They were neglecting the service of God in favor of service of themselves. And so God says to the people of Israel, he says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. And he says this to them twice. He says, consider your ways. And so what he does is he then lays out the reality of their lives that, that they may not have even recognized, right? So... He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. 
no matter how hard the people of Israel strive, they never get ahead. No matter how hard they press, they cannot have enough. No matter what the activity is, they are never fulfilled or satisfied by it. No matter what it is, he says, hey, you sow a lot, you harvest a little. You eat a lot, but you're never full. You drink, but you, you, you never get enough. You clothe yourselves, but you're not warm. And you're earning wages, but you have nothing to show for it because it's like you're earning wages to put them into a bag filled with holes. And like I said earlier, they, they likely didn't even realize that this was happening. They probably just thought, well, we just need to keep working harder. We just need to keep striving. This is the reality of life coming home from exile. We have to you know, reestablish our lands. We have to reestablish our households. We have to reestablish this. And so they thought we just have to keep striving. And God says, no, the issue is not the land. The issue is not the exile. The issue is not your striving. The issue is that you have neglected worship. Because your life, apart from following God, is always going to leave you unfulfilled. You can work and work and work, but it won't be enough. You can earn and earn and earn, but it won't be enough. You can play, but it won't be enough. You can have possessions, but it won't be enough. Because the momentary enjoyment that those things will bring to you, it will fade. And you will be left wanting. You will say, I need more. This is not enough. And I need more. And as God tells them again to consider their ways, he gives them a command. He gives them a command here. So he, he gives them all of this and he says, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So God says, consider your ways. And he gives them all of these things that are showing that their lives are not what they want them to be because of their neglect of worship. And then God says again, consider your ways. And then he gives them what their ways should be. So consider your ways and he gives them all what their ways currently are and why they're not working. And then he says, consider your ways, and he gives them this command. This is what your ways should be. And he says, go and build the house. Go build my house. Go rebuild the temple. Go worship. And so God tells them to do this, and he says two things to them. He says, first, go and build my house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may take pleasure in my house. Now, this is the very thing that the Israelites have been seeking for themselves. They are they have been seeking their own pleasure, their own desire, their own gain, their own fulfillment. And God says, stop focusing on your own fulfillment and your own gain. Set that aside. Go build my house that I may take pleasure in it. That I may take pleasure in it. So when we think about worship, we need to think less about what brings us pleasure and more about what brings God pleasure. This is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to focus on and understand what the Bible commands us to do in worship. 
places like the book of first Corinthians lay a lot of this out that the Bible tells us specifically what God wants us to do in worship. And that's what we need to focus on, not on what we like or what we desire. We need to focus on what God takes pleasure in. And then he also says not only that he may take pleasure in it, but he also says that, and that I may be glorified, that I may be glorified. And so this is what Israel should have been seeking. So they have been seeking their own pleasure. And God says, you need to set that aside. And you need to worry about my pleasure and my glory. This is what Israel should have been seeking. They should have been seeking what brings glory to God himself. And so God is, is kind of flipping around on them what their lives have been looking like and what they should be looking like using worship of him as kind of the picture of that. And so as, as we think about this, we need to consider our own ways. We need to consider in our own lives ways that we have elevated ourselves above the worship of God and the following of Jesus Christ. We need to consider our ways in that our examination of our hearts in asking, have I been focused on the glory of God or have I been focused on the glory of myself? The next thing we see in our passage this morning is we see the presence of the Lord. We see the presence of the Lord. So let's look starting at verse 9. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. There are two outcomes of the presence of God. There are two outcomes of the presence of God. If you are in defiance and disobedience, God's presence brings judgment upon you. And God affirms this truth in his word to Israel. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, you looked for much. So Israel was focused on their own gain. You looked for much. And behold, it came to little. So they were focused on their own gain, but they were unable to bring their grand plans to fruition. They had these plans of what kind of gain they were going to get, and they got much less than they thought. 
But God goes on and he says, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. I blew it away. So not only were their plans limited, but God was actively causing them to lose these things that they so badly desired. God was actively, when they got this little bit of gain, they would bring it home and and God says, I blew it away. I took from you this gain that you were so focused on. I took every bit of it away. And why did he do that? Why was this happening? Because again, Israel had neglected the worship of God while focusing on themselves. He tells them again, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. But but more than just recognizing that Israel was neglecting worship of God and focusing on themselves, I want you to, to make sure sh- I want to make sure you understand here and you, that you see this is happening because God was doing it to them. God was doing it. God was actively punishing Israel for their behavior. And not only was he doing that, but it was going to get worse. God says that the the heavens have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and he has called for a drought. He's called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Every single thing is going to be affected. God gives this list because he wants them to understand the the effects of this drought, of this punishment, of this judgment are going to be far reaching. It's not just a drought in that, oh, well, I'm going to have a drought and and there's not going to be rain. He says, no, listen, even the labors of your men and animals are going to be impacted by this drought. Everything is going to be affected. And so the people rightly recognize that God has sent Haggai to them as a prophet. And they set out to obey the voice of the Lord. But verse 12 tells us something there. It says, And the people feared the Lord. Their reason for obeying in this way, for striving for obedience, was that they feared the Lord. But here's the thing about fear. Eventually, you stop being scared. Eventually, fear fades away because the thing that brought you fear fades from your memory. And you end up carrying on as if nothing ever happened. This is why you have to spank children over and over again. Because if fear was all you needed for a deterrent, all of our kids will be much more well-behaved than they are. There are certain settings in which I cannot readily spank my daughter, but I can give her a look, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't, because fear is not always effective. And fear is typically not a lasting deterrent. And God, knowing this because he knows all things, gives the people what they really need in order to carry out the work. What does he say? 
Haggai again speaks to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. This is the underlying promise of God's covenant with the people of Israel, that he is with them, that his presence is with them. And this promise stirs the spirits of the Israelites and they go to work building the temple. This is the second possible outcome of the presence of God. The first is that God brings judgment. The second is that God stirs the hearts and spirits of his people to serve him and follow him. All throughout the history of Israel, we see this promise giving strength to the ones that God has fulfilling his purposes. And this is because the promise is pointing to a greater reality. The promise is pointing to the reality that God himself, the presence of God, is going to come to dwell among his people forever. This temple that God is calling the people here to build is temporary. It's temporary. The temple to come, Jesus Christ, is permanent. He said so himself. In Mark 14, 58, it says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. The temple is the marker of the presence of God among his people. And the true temple the eternal temple is Jesus Christ himself. And so as we think about this passage and we think about the implications, especially for us as Christians, because see, the Old Testament serves a specific purpose for us. It serves a purpose of showing us what God has done and what God will do. And it serves a purpose of pointing to Christ the Old Testament is not for us to take object lessons on how we can be better. The purpose of the Old Testament is to point us to the one who is better, and that's Christ himself. So the first thing we need to recognize when we talk about the presence of the Lord, we talk about having that presence, is that Jesus Christ is the presence of God. In Matthew 1.23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Matthew here is quoting Isaiah chapter 7, and this again is the promise of God in Haggai 1.13. I am with you, declares the Lord. Jesus is God with us. And so then, as we consider the fact that Christ is the presence of God, we also must recognize that Christ is our righteousness, our obedience to obey the things of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
So God calls us to consider our ways and to be obedient to what he has commanded us. But we can't. We are unable to obey the law of God. But Christ has perfectly obeyed the law of God for us. He has given his righteousness to us. And so Christian, we do not fear the wrath of God because we do not bear the burden of obedience because Christ has done that. We do not bear that burden. Do not read passages like Haggai chapter 1 and consider your ways and think, I need to do better so God does not have wrath for me or anger with me. Do not read Haggai chapter 1 and think that your response is fear. If you, if you are not in Christ, the presence of God is judgment and wrath upon you, and you should fear. But if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you should hear this passage and be free. At the same time, we should and do and must serve God above ourselves. Not because obedience gives us righteousness, but because we are called to have the mind of Christ. We just saw that in the book of Philippians. So we should serve God above ourselves because we are called to have the mind of Christ. We should pray that God would stir our spirits to obedience. Because that is what the presence of God does in the life of a Christian. Notice that in the lives of God's people, when God told them, I am with you, what happened? He stirred their spirits to obedience. And so this morning, let's pray together that God, because of his presence in us, with his son, by his spirit, that he would stir our spirits to obedience. Christian, we should obey God out of joy for his presence, not fear of his wrath. There's a massive difference between those two things. They could not be further apart. Because the presence of God for the believer is a joyful thing. The presence of God for a non-believer should be a terrifying thing. And so because we are in Christ, we have the presence of God with us just as God promised to his people here in Haggai. Because we have Christ, we have perfect obedience in him. And so we obey, not because we must earn salvation, not because we fear God's wrath. We obey because we are striving to be like Jesus Christ. And so together, let us pray that God would stir our spirits to obedience. That in all things, we would serve him above ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace and your mercy that you have given to us freely in Christ. And I pray, Father, that you 
grant to us that you would stir our spirits to obedience. Father, I pray that if there is anyone watching this morning that that does not know Christ, that, Father, you, by your grace, would show them their sin and their need for salvation. Reveal the newness of Christ to them. Give them life today, Father. And for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would stir our spirits to obedience, that we would serve you always with joy because we rejoice in your presence because your presence is Christ. Thank you, Father, for your goodness in sending him, your son, to save us. We pray all of this in his name and for his glory forever. Amen.